0: Please turn with me in uh, your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, the second chapter. As we've been studying Proverbs this fall. Uh, the subject uh, before us today is the strange woman, Dr. Joel Niederhood, and a series on the ba- Back to the Bible broadcast, uh, Back to God broadcast, says uh, we are society, or when a society becomes X rated as ours virtually has, that we must not measure the depths to which we've fallen solely in terms of increased abortions or higher rates of illegitimacy or growing divorce rate, but these are symptoms of a deep depravity which has gathered its power among us. I believe that's true. There's a massive assault on purity and on uh, the family and on marriage going on in our society, and in the name of liberation this is going on. In America today you'd have some one million people living together as couples but not married. That's a 600% increase in the last ten years. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about uh, immorality of this nature, and you find uh, that This is dealt with primarily under the description of the strange woman. Now, that's not to say that men are not just as bad, if not worse, than women in this whole area of sexual immorality. But this seductive woman that is pictured by Solomon certainly typifies this whole area of sin and of alienation from God and the allurement of this lifestyle. So let's see what he does. Is He gives a graphic and detailed portrait of the sensuous woman. The modern liberated woman uh, might describe herself something like this. Here's a quote from Catherine Breslin, the author of The Mistress Condition, New Options in Sex, Love, and Other Female Pleasures. Sex, she says, is certainly a large part of the new game. Rollicking, satisfying, non-exploitive sex. A grown-up, but playful sort of business. This game is self-fulfillment and gratification. The new woman, she says, looks at life and sex from a different perspective than her older counterpart. Marriage to the new lady looks like a strange and difficult, even burdensome, arrangement. She says, uh, one man can't meet all of her needs, and so on. Uh, A mistress of her own life may have eight or ten important men that she enjoys. Uh, Well, what does Solomon say about the strange woman? Notice in chapter 2, verse 16, as he describes her, she flatters with her words. He says that he is writing to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words. The Living Bible translates that prostitute instead of strange woman. But I'm not sure that that's an accurate translation. Uh, as you read through Proverbs, you find that this woman often has a husband who's away when she plies her approach to life. The Berkeley says loose woman. Maybe that would be better. Uh, The Hebrew word means literally foreign or alien. In uh, chapter 6 and verse 24 and 25, we notice the way she uses her eyes. In chapter 6, verse 24, To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman, lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee, With her eyelids or her eyelashes or her glances, or as the living Bible says, don't let their coyness seduce you. In 721, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. So she's adept at using all of the weapons in her arsenal, from smooth words to sensuous movements of her body. And she fans the flames of lust and keeps them... Uh, increasing always she forsakes the companion of her youth in verse 17 which forsaketh the guide of her youth or her husband of her youth and uh, the last part of that verse and forgetteth the covenant of her God and you pick up here that marriage is a covenant not only with your mate but with God a commitment that's the essence of marriage this Commitment to faithfulness to one another and you enter into it in the presence of God and uh, he holds you responsible to it but she forgets this covenant she makes light of it she would seem to us to be worldly wise liberated maybe but Solomon says she's a fool he speaks of her folly in chapter 9 in verse 13 a foolish woman Is clamorous, she is simple and knoweth nothing. And he goes on to describe that she calls out to men to come in and so on. Uh, Is she really happy? Has she really found fulfillment? Is this the way to fulfillment? Josh McDowell, in his book, Givers, Takers, and Other Kinds of Lovers, very helpful book, uh, quotes from a young lady who went off to college with this approach to life. She wrote an article, a very frank article about herself in the August 1977 issue of Mademoiselle. Her name was uh, Gretchen Kurtz, student at San Jose State University. She says, there I was, well equipped with my number two pencil, student service card, and an adequate supply of birth control pills. But somehow I missed the boat on the pleasure cruise of carefree, guilt-free sex. Actually, I now believe that it's all a myth perpetrated by a lot of disappointed students, too afraid to tell the truth. But then again, how are you supposed to admit it's all a crock after you couldn't wait to get out and break all the rules? How can you admit that it's not all it's cracked up to be, that it's disappointing and disillusioning? Josh McDowell talks about the fact that God designed sex to be a unity, a deep unity between the man and the woman, not isolated from the giving of ourselves in commitment to each other fully. When you try to isolate sex alone without commitment, without the commitment that's implied in marriage, that it's very dissatisfying. He says, this unity in sexual intercourse provides for a man and a woman the most lasting enjoyment and maximum fulfillment they can possibly know. That's why sex at the right time with the right person in the right relationship is so incredibly perfect. And that's why the abuse of sex ultimately produces such enormous disappointment. Now we see the description. Notice the danger to her and to her guests. In chapter 5, verse 3, For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her end, and Solomon and Proverbs won't let us forget that there is an end. There is a long run. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. The next verse, as paraphrased in the Living Bible, says, For she does not know the path of life. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't even realize where it leads. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't even realize where it leads. The danger to her and to her guests. And chapter two verse eighteen, for her house inclineth unto death, and her paths unto the dead. None that go unto her return again, neither take they hold of the paths of life, the danger to her guests. twenty two fourteen says, The mouth of a strong of a strange woman is a deep pit, and he that falleth therein is abhorred. Of the Lord. The danger is not only the danger to the individual, it's a danger to the entire society. An interesting study Sex Roles and the Christian Family by Peter Bilchington, a PhD who teaches at the University of, at Andrews University in Michigan. Now, he points out that Our society is being plagued by a lack of productivity in industry, and uh, our scholastic achievements are waning. He said a lot of studies have been done to try to explain why, and they blame it on the TV and on broken homes and on uh, maybe a change in curriculum, and all those may well be factors. But he believes that a basic cause of the lack of productivity and the lack of achievement is our sexual liberation quote, and he points out that in the history of nations, no society that's had sexual license has ever been characterized by productivity or by strength. And uh, where you've had a strong nation that then began to engage in sexual license, immediately the productivity and the strength of the nation have gone down. He uses France as an illustration of a weak nation, weak for some 300 years and characterized by sexual license. And he says uh, that um, not only do you have this factor, but he says uh, that the typical lack of commitment found among promiscuous individuals is not restricted to marital relationships. It also includes a lack of commitment to practically everything, standards, ideals, values, and laws. Commitments spread to include other commitments. Those whose early lives emphasize commitment to the family will find it easier to commit themselves to other people and to standards and values as well. In other words, you come out with a society of non-committal people promiscuity he says has a strong valence once again it's it's a difficult habit to break despite strong efforts by the people involved to stop it and statistics indicate that once seven to ten percent of the people in a society begin to practice something it's generally picked up by the population as a whole and promiscuity divorce and adultery are already well beyond that ten percent figure So that accounts for the tremendous popularity of books like uh, Open Marriage by the O'Neills, George and Nina O'Neill, where uh, they studied the couples, uh, say four couples would decide to all be married to each other. Everybody had everybody's wife, etc. You could choose any partner any given evening. And uh, this was supposed to be an enlightened approach to life and marriage. And they wrote glowingly after their initial study of this approach. But then he points out that uh, Nina O'Neill has recently written another book in which she questions their concept of open marriage based on her observation of her own son's divorce as well as the failure of some of those open marriages that they had observed several years back. She is now apparently coming around to the idea that traditional marriages the ones that God initially designed, are the only route to true happiness and fulfillment. And he says, As I study the voluminous literature on the effects of the new promiscuity upon participants in shattered personalities, warped characters, and increasingly frantic stimulation-seeking, I become all the more convinced of the necessity of pure and holy monogamous marriages." Proponents of the sexual liberation, he says, have pointed out the limited, that limiting sexual expression to monogamous marriages makes people neurotic, uptight, and limits their freedom. And you'd have courses like that being taught all across this country at colleges, University of Alabama, University of Auburn, places like that. You'd have courses being taught uh, that would attack the traditional approach to marriage. And it says, slowly, gradually, they've been working to erode the traditions of monogamy, sexual purity, and all the roles and functions, sexual and otherwise, that make up families. But we have seen clearly from the research that while abstinence may promote temporary discomfort, in the long run enables us to love deeply and to experience happiness and stability in our culture. The dangers to the individual and to the society cost is very, very high. We see the description, the dangers. Notice the description of the men who listen to her call. Uh, they would be wise men too, wouldn't they? Well, she calls in chapter 9, verse 13 following. She's clamorous and she sits at the door of her house to call the passengers who go right on their ways. Notice the description of the man who listens, verse 16. Whoso is simple... Let him turn in hither. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, "Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant." Those who respond are very naive. Matter of fact, they're stupid. They're just plain stupid. At taking a, a very foolish approach to life. The enticement is stolen waters of sweet, the momentary excitement, the allurement, uh, something forbidden. But what they don't know is that the dead are there. Verse 18, but he knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. The contrast is striking between the supposed glamour and then the Pathetic reality. You have a description given in detail in chapter 7 of an approach where such a simple one is taken by a seductress. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Proverbs entitles this the simpleton and the seductress. And uh, you have first uh, the victim in verse 6 of chapter 7. At the window of my house, I looked through my casement, and beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understanding. Of course, it's not just youths, it? It's an No fool like an old fool. Uh, passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house, he wanders In the path of temptation. He's careless. He doesn't walk circumspectly. Here's the victim. Then you have the huntress introduced in verse 10. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. What would we say? She was dressed fit to kill. And uh, she is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, now in the streets. And lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. Here we have her tactics. And with an impudent face she said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows. Let's celebrate, it's a holiday. And therefore I came forth to meet thee diligently. I was looking just for you, and I found you. I've decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love. For the good man is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. And then you have the kill. Verse 22. He goeth after her straightway, as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Then you have the epilogue in verse 24. Hearken unto me now therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways, and go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. David was a strong man, wasn't he? But David fell flat on his face. And it can happen. To any of us. We see the description of those who listen to her call. The deliverance through heeding instruction. Solomon says the way to avoid this is to heed instruction. And notice that was the purpose of his writing. In verse uh, 16 of chapter 2 he says that, "...to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words." That was one purpose that he had in writing this wisdom literature, these proverbs, these practical uh, principles to live by. But you know, as you find, as you study the book of Proverbs, ultimately true wisdom is found in a person, or is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the eighth chapter, he, he is wisdom personified. And uh, the way to be wise is to enter into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Apart from doing that, I'm a foolish person. I've lived my life in vain. The way to be truly wise is to understand God's plan of salvation, that God is holy and yet he is loving. And uh, that we're sinful, that he created man good, but man rebelled against him. And when Adam turned against God, that the whole human race was plunged into darkness spiritually, became uh, no longer like God had made man, but corrupted inwardly. And this corruption's been passed down so that we're born with sinful tendencies. We want to do our own thing, and that's not God's way. But God still loves us, and God sent his Son. He couldn't overlook it, but he sent his Son to take upon himself the guilt of our sin and to pay for it. Isn't that incredible? That God, the Son, became a man and died. That's what Christmas is all about. God becoming man. Why? To redeem us. To pay the price of our having rebelled against a holy and a loving God. And that his son went to that cross according to God the Father's commandment and took our guilt upon himself voluntarily and was punished terribly for it because that's what our sin deserves. That's exactly what we deserve. And he went through that. And on that basis of that payment for our sin, God now offers us forgiveness. If we will acknowledge our rebellion and sin, Turn from it in our hearts. Purpose to obey. That's repentance. And then trust in Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, as our forgiveness, that God would forgive us on the basis of Christ having paid for our sin. Then walk with him as we do this. God does forgive, and God begins to change us. This is the incredible message of the Bible. This is true wisdom. This is true freedom. Christ said, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, have you ever made that kind of commitment to Jesus? That's the beginning. Then, uh, not forsaking the teaching of our parents, of our father, of our mother. In chapter 6, verse 20. He says, My son, keep thy father's commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Verse 23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and the reproofs of instruction are the way of life, to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. It's assuming that the parent is instructing the child in the ways of God biblically. And he says, Now, listen to your parent's instruction, how many of your parents told you, go out and find that strange woman? Mine certainly didn't tell me to do that. If I had only followed my parents' advice, but I didn't, I went astray. I was like that fool that he speaks about, that young man. I regret it deeply. I wish I had obeyed and listened to my parents, but I didn't. I was foolish. That's number one. Listening to the instruction of our parents. And then discipline ourselves. Chapter 6, verse 20, that same context. He says, Keep your father's commandment, forsake not the Lord your mother, bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. That teaching of your mother and dad, that biblical teaching about God's standards, about true life, About true fulfillment. Find it. Just keep it before you. Meditate on it. And it will talk to you. It says, When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. When thou wakest, it shall talk with thee. These teachings will will shape you. Shape your thinking. So important how I think. Self-control is primarily mind control. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, if there's anything praiseworthy, if there's anything virtuous, think on these things, says Paul. Mind control. Let it talk with me. Let it counsel me. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, follow that teaching. Self-control, discipline. David says, I'm purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. And I need to purpose that my ears and my eyes and my mouth shall not transgress. Control what goes into them. What I listen to. What I look at. What I read. Self-control. Self-discipline. Be not conformed to this world, said Paul, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As I bring it to Scripture, meditate on it. Meditate on the warnings, those warnings we read about her house. The dead are they are there. Their steps go down to hell. Those who go into her don't return. They don't come back. Meditate on that. It'll scare the hell out of you. That's exactly what it's designed to do, to scare the hell out of you and to keep you out of hell. And that's the way to do it. Meditate on the warnings. And, uh, Chapter 6, verse 27, Can a man take fire in his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals, and his feet not be burned? Verse 32, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Just take that some night, and just sit down there and meditate on it, and frame it, and keep it before you, and write it out, and stick it in your in your pocket, and look at it every, while, every now and again, you know. Stay away. Avoid temptation. In uh, the 5th chapter, the 8th verse, Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. Flee temptation. If you're in a situation at work where you're tempted... Flee temptation. Quit the job. You said, wait a minute, I'm making $30,000 a year. I don't care. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Get out of there. Jesus said, cut off your right hand. Pluck out your right eye. If it offends you, if it causes you to stumble spiritually, do anything to avoid that. You know, it's so easy to become the strange woman or the man who lives that way also. I was in another city recently and uh, talking with a young lady who came to me for counsel there. As she began to talk, she had a job in industry. She was concerned about a man that worked with her, and she wanted to know how she could help his marriage out. uh, His wife was not a Christian, and he was, and they were unhappy. And and, uh, what could she do to help? And she talked a little while, and I said, the best thing you can do is get out of there. You break off your relationship to him. You're in very serious danger. True, you're concerned about his marriage. That is a concern. Let some man help him with his marriage. You get out of there. He's an accident going somewhere to happen, and you don't need it to happen to you. So easy to become a strange woman. Some of you here have experienced it. So easy to fall. None of us are above this. I have close friends in the ministry. Some of the men who helped me and whom I helped in the founding of this denomination who fell right into that deep pit, no longer in the ministry today. It can happen to anybody. Flee, avoid, be conscious of the danger. And cultivate the relationship with your own wife. Chapter 5. Verse 15, Drink waters out of thine own sister, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and the rivers of water in the streets. Let them be thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hand, and the pleasant robe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all of his goings. Be ravished with your own mate. Be intoxicated with your own wife. I'm intoxicated with my wife. Amen. Of course, she's intoxicated. <clears throat> but uh, uh, you can be intoxicated with your wife. We can find fulfillment in our marriage. If we'll follow God's principles, if we will really applying them, they're costly, but they pay. Work on your own marriage. Cultivate it. Uh, you treat your wife like a queen, and she'll become one. You treat your husband like a king, and he'll become one. And you'll find far, far, far more sexual fulfillment right there than you can anywhere else in the world there is fulfillment in God's pattern of marriage I was talking with Tom Carradine recently our director of our college career ministry and he was reflecting on the fact that in his six years here in that capacity we've had some two to three hundred somewhere between two and three hundred of our college career age who've been involved in that ministry intimately get married and he's not aware of a single divorce in that group. Now that's that's in a nation where the average is one out of every one point eight marriages wind up in divorce. There is fulfillment if we'll follow God's pattern. There is freedom. There is forgiveness. You remember Augustine? Augustine lived a very licentious life. He was in Rome. He went to hear a bishop preach, Ambrose. He began to struggle with Christianity. He had a Bible. One day he was out in his backyard and he had been reading and gotten tired of reading and put it down. A child was playing next door and the child he thought was prattering, but he began listening to the child and the child said, "Tolly totally leggy, tolly leggy, take and read, take and read." He felt like it was a message through the child from the Lord. And he picked up the Bible and opened it and it fell open to Romans where it says, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy it in the lust thereof. He knelt and gave his heart to Christ. A little later on he was going down the street and his mistress saw him. He crossed the street to avoid her, and she came running after him. She said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. He said, yes, but it's not I. Amen. You can be different. You can be changed. You can be set free. Not without a constant uh, reliance on the Lord and constant use of the means and constant self-discipline and and fleeing. All that's part of the battle. But Christ forgives and Christ changes. It's is a solemn matter, very serious. Some of you are playing with you. Some of you are the strange woman. Some of you are men who take that same approach to life. And God's speaking to you, and God's speaking to all of us. We're in a society that's immersed in this. The dangers are, are just so high. The cost is so great. Pray for me. Let's pray for each other. Let's encourage each other. And let's really deal seriously with the Lord about this. If you've never committed your life to Christ, start there. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, uh, what's God been saying to you through this? Is there a situation you're in uh, that uh, you know you're placing yourself in the way of temptation? Are you the strange woman? Are you a man who lives that way? Do you understand the ultimate consequence of it? Do you understand the folly of postponing, dealing with it? Have you ever really committed your life to Christ? There's freedom, there's forgiveness. If you're willing to commit your life to Christ, and you've never really done that, do that. And if. You've already done it, but he's been speaking to you. Why, yield and repent and acknowledge to him what you've heard him saying. If you've never committed your life to Christ, in your heart, if you're willing to have a master, if you believe his claims, pray like this. Lord Jesus, how I thank you for what you did for me. I am willing to have you as my master. I know you'll be a good and loving master. And I do trust you as my Savior who died for my sins to cleanse me and to forgive me. And I trust you to come into my life uh, to forgive, to change. I surrender to you. Amen.